You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Welcome to All, all the, the things. things. I am Monique Dusan. And you are? Okay, I am Krista Bontrager. <laughs> we will have bubbles the entire show. And our children are blowing bubbles. This is the show where we talk about all things related to God, life, and the Bible. Yeah, discussing culturally relevant topics in light of the historic Christian worldview. That's like the academic version of that. Well, there's that. God, life, and the Bible, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, um, we went to go see C.S. Lewis's one-man band show this week. Last week? Last week. Last Saturday. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah, so we went over to uh, Santa Monica Community College, which Mm -hmm. is felt like a four-hour drive to me. It's really not that far. <laughs> it was so far. It was not that bad. Santa Monica's only an hour and a half. It's yeah. Okay. So went over there. We met up with uh, our friends, uh, Lori Stewart, who's been a guest on the show before, mm-hmm. and Jane Pantig, who is a college campus evangelist. Yeah, she has a pretty wonderful ministry. Yeah. Reaching out to kids. Um on college campuses, yeah. not kids, young adults. Yes. I'd love to have Jane on the show sometime, talk about what she's up to. So Let's there we are, posing in front of the uh, large banner. Abby went with us, and we had a very nice time. So how now, I would characterize the, the C.S. Lewis play as a one-man show where one actor stands up and does a series of kind of quotes and summaries from Lewis' writings to tell the the story of his childhood, his deconversion, his descent into atheism, and then his slow conversion. Yeah, his yeah. slow conversion to to Christianity. Um, Reconversion. Yeah. <laughs> so could be a word. That that's kind of how I would characterize it. Now I'm more familiar with Lewis. I I took a class in seminary. We had to read like nine of his books. So and I, I like the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. Which I don't know if they had any quotes from the Narnia books in the play. I'm curious what you thought as, you know, kind of an outsider. Lewis is sort of a newish person for you. I honestly thought that the actor, I don't remember his name right now. Max McLean. Yes. He did a phenomenal job. I was like, you know, you were able to keep my attention for the whole hour and 15. And I thought that was good. It was sort Um, of a giant cosplay where he dressed up like Lewis, mm -hmm. smoked a pipe drank some wine there was that yeah um well i'm sorry i'll leave that i I derailed Um, you and but in the beginning because i'm not familiar with a lot of c.s lewis and he spoke so fast i wasn't able to really grasp all that he was saying and what he was talking about so that was a little he had a british accent yeah. So if you're not used to that, that could be a little challenging. Yeah. yeah. It was just the beginning was hard for me. But as it progressed, I really was I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning about the things that kind of pushed him into atheism or piqued his curiosity. And then the way that God brought him out and yeah. all of the little step by step pieces that even though he didn't know were, you know, pulling him into relationship with Christ were pulling him into yeah. relationship with Christ. And so, yeah, I, I re- highly recommend it. Actually. It's a, it's a traveling show. So be watching uh, for it to come to an area near you. Mm-hmm. He's been doing it for a couple of years, but he travels around and, and, and does the one man show. 
So this is the last weekend. It's in Los Angeles. I think tonight might be the last performance, actually. And then um, it'll go on to another city so people can watch for it. Yeah. Um, so my friend Rachel Shockey uh, really encouraged us to go to help support Christian art. She's an artist. And the tickets, in my opinion, are a little on the expensive side. Hmm. It's sort of an act of philanthropy <laughs> that you're, you're, you're kind of being intentional about supporting Christian art. But um, it's... It, it's it's a good show, especially if you love Lewis, you love apologetics, mm-hmm. you know that sort of thing. I, I would recommend it. So, there so is, yeah. in your opinion, it was worth the higher cost. Um, I, it was just a decision I had to make. I don't think we paid sixty nine dollars a ticket. I don't think I would. It Abby's ticket. There was a student price. They gave us like a a cut rate. I I, I don't know. To me, that was just a lot of money. For an hour and 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a nice little Q&A afterward with the... Uh, I appreciated that. With the actor, which was nice. He took questions from the audience. But I, I just had to kind of make a decision that, like Rachel said, of supporting Christians in the arts. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like the tickets were way overpriced, to be honest. But, I mean, I was grateful for Lori's invitation and helping us get there and the fellowship and the whole experience. That part of it worth it so mm-hmm. it was good so and we do want to introduce a special guest tonight uh helping us behind the scenes is bob the faithful bu- button pusher and there he is and emily is hello. home from camp hello there nice running see y'all. yes running so the this sound is this is uh, emily and that person there that's abby. abby she's got green hair for some reason i don't know what happened abby's but, uh, getting ready to go to camp tomorrow so Emily uh, has been working up at Forest Home all mm-hmm. summer. So she's here visiting us and running the soundboard because uh, the show is a family affair. It is. <laughs> if you're in the family, it's you have to be part of the affair. <laughs> yes. So, uh, maybe we should do a quick recap of last week's show. Um, I have a question. Though. Okay. Okay. Right. So I'm thinking about the cost of the play. Right. And I We're can't guess right. because I wonder if people, not you per se, but if it was another play. Is it the cost of this play and what you think you got? Or is it just that like that amount in general? Because what I wonder is, are Christians more hesitant to support Christian things than we are to support something in the world? Possibly. I don't go to a lot of concerts and events. So maybe $69 is a fair price. Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking of it as in comparison to like a two-hour movie where I go pay like somewhere between 8 to $15. I just thought it was a lot. But maybe it's not. Maybe I don't go to a lot of shows. So maybe we could get somebody to comment. Like I just remember just- someone asking me that and, and questioning my stand to like go and see Beyonce. But I wasn't running to go and see... Mary Mary oh, or I would be I, like I, I why is the Mary point. Mary ticket so much you know but yet I'll spend 200 bucks to go and see, see Beyonce, Beyonce. Right. so it would for me I wonder like how do we support other Christians who are doing things um like in their sphere and you know things like that how do we as Christians jump on the bandwagon to support them well I think that's a great question, question. another time but we you know. should maybe have Rachel Shockey on the show sometime and yeah. ask her that very question because I know she's given that a lot of thought right now she's trying to do her master's thesis, which is basically an art show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think she would really dig 
fielding that question. Yeah. We should probably have her on, on the show sometime. So good, good questions. Um, and we want to encourage everyone to jump in on the chat tonight. Uh, our friend Annette is already online and saying hi to us. So Annette. Yeah. Uh, yeah. See, Annette says, I never pay that much for any show. See, I'm kind of with Annette. I would, okay. I, I, you know, maybe like if it was an Amy Grant concert, I might pay like 40 bucks and feel like I was being a big spender. Okay. But I would never pay like $200 to go to a concert. Okay. That's just me. So <laughs> I guess I'm not a patron of the arts. <laughs> I don't know. Just wondering. Yeah. Okay. So you were talking about last week's show. Last week's show. Biblical literacy. Yes. Have you seen it? I know. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Go catch the replay. Dr. Mike Gurney is on and he's speaking about the decline of enrollment in seminary, which leads to a decline in biblical literacy in the church yeah. coming from the pulpit into the pews. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I thought it was a good show. I've been reflecting on it all week. I actually had time to listen to it back uh, this week. I, I listened to the whole show back. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually thought it was a very useful conversation. Uh, they're very thought-provoking. I'm hoping that the Lord will lead some pastors and some leaders to, to consider some of the things. I'd love to hear some of their comments to the ideas that we discussed. I did follow up that that conversation with a video this week. If people haven't caught it yet, it's both on YouTube and Facebook um, about Todd White. Mm. And it was, I thought it was a good uh, follow-up. There was a video of Todd White floating around social media last weekend and people were calling him out as a heretic and false teacher. And so I did a little analysis of that idea in light of our conversation with Mike Gurney. So um, I'll include the, that in the show notes. Uh, it was in the show notes for last week, but awesome. it was, um, it was a good, it was a good, uh, video. I got some good feedback about Todd White. And now people want me to do more Todd White analysis about fire tunnels and whatnot. And if people don't know who Todd White is, how would you describe him? Uh, he's a very famous speaker. I would characterize him in the Bethel a uh, new apostolic, what I call neo-charismatic tradition. Uh, he has a lot of YouTube videos of him going out street witnessing, but he does a lot of public speaking and conferences. Yeah. Um, he's kind of a one man, uh, he's kind of a one trick pony. Like he's got one thing and that's identity in Christ. And all his messages are just variations on that same theme. Mm -hmm. Came out um, of? drug scene and yeah like he was an atheist like yeah that. he was he was a drug addict uh and got saved as an adult he's an adult convert yeah. so i think his story is pretty awesome and yeah, fascinating it is it's a great testimony uh there's a lot of things i like about todd white so i just want to encourage people to go check out my video and uh, maybe i'll work on a video on fire tunnels i've been oh. researching them this week there's a lot that is a very peculiar thing but yes. i do have a few thoughts about it so all right so all right, let's do so the, sh the rundown. Today's show. Yes. Women in ministry. We're all over the place here. Yes. And that's okay. Jesus help. Women right. in ministry and our role in the church. Yes. Yes. We're going to talk about that. So I'm going to ask I, you some questions. I think you're going to interview me. Yes. I have some questions. I'm very nervous. Don't be nervous. I'll be <laughs> gentle. Okay. Maybe. All right. Um, and then later on, we're going to talk about dreams and visions. And does God still speak through dreams and visions? 
Yeah, this is a viewer-suggested segment, so we're kind of letting one of our viewers uh, be the producer. And this is the first time that we've done this. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. We'll see how it goes. So, Well, I think it'll go good, but you know. I think the question about does God still speak through dreams is a a question that lurks in a lot of people's minds, but it's unspoken Mm -hmm. in in some churches. And so, you know, we'll talk about it. I was actually speaking with someone today who said she wasn't sure how to address dreams and visions. She's in church leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just like awesome and amazing, but it's a real question. Like yeah. how do you address dreams and visions? And when people come to you in your small group or in your church and say, I had this dream, does this mean anything? How do you, how do you begin to give them some spiritual guidance about that? So. First of all, have you sought the Lord on yeah, that dream? Exactly. <laughs> or is that pizza? Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Pizza. All right. Hey, we're so, kind of twins. We are. I just noticed. Except my both. shirt says anything is possible. I don't know if you can see it, but anything is possible. Yes. yes. Well, mine is uh, Junia, Priscilla, Lydia, Phoebe, Ruth, Deborah, Esther. Esther. So Who are they? This, these are all women in the Bible, but many people don't know who Junia is. It's a fitting... Uh, question for today's topic on women in ministry. She's a, a female apostle that's mentioned in Romans chapter 16. So oh. I thought I would wear my Christian women shirt. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So you are a former adjunct theo- theology professor at yes. Biola. Yeah. Um, you are currently in ministry at Reasons to Believe, and you are not like just employed there, but you're a theologian and a scholar. Yes. And you have taught Sunday school? I have taught adult Sunday school. Mm-hmm. I've taught youth. I've taught all ages, really, um, from 8 to 88. Okay. I mean, and everybody in between. So you're so, pretty seasoned. Yeah, I try. You say? Yeah. I, okay. I, so I tell us about not just the, you know, this is what I've done, but tell us some of the intricate parts of what ministry has looked like for you. Well, it's certainly been... Uh, varied over the years. Um, I think that in the beginning, in my seminary years, I really struggled to find my to find my footing. I, I wasn't really sure I wanted to go into ministry, so I was not an MDiv major. I, I wasn't on the the official pastoral ministry track, which is a Master of Divinity. I w- I did two Master of Arts programs because I thought I was going to take a more academic route and go get a PhD, but that didn't quite materialize. And the Lord was so gracious in guiding me a different way. Um, a lot of what I've done in a ministry has been through apologetics and in the world of apologetics through reasons to believe I have been adjunct faculty on and off over the years at Biola. Um, and also the, I think the big challenge in, in my life as a woman in ministry has been, uh, the local church, um, it's it's been hard to find my place in my local church. I think that's been the harder part of my story. When I was in seminary, my husband and I were reformed. And so we went to several reformed churches. We were in a reformed Baptist church for a year or so. We were in three different United Reformed churches, no, two different United Reformed churches. Um, and it was a struggle to be pretty candid. Um, in one of those churches, the senior pastor um, told me straight to my face 
very directly um, that he did not even support me teaching at Biola. Um, he tried to actively prevent me from being hired at Biola, called the person who was hiring, told them not to hire me. That's fine. Yeah. Um, thankfully, that uh, the person who was hiring didn't listen to that advice and gave me a shot anyways. Um, in another situation at another Reformed church that we went to, um, met with the pastor several times, and um, he basically told me that if if we joined the church, because we were in the process of investigating membership, and if we joined the church, that I would be immediately put under church discipline until I quit my job, because women were um, not allowed to teach men. And in my job, I wrote articles and did some public speaking where I was teaching a mixed audience. So those were some rough moments in my my life. And even at that time, I was still thinking through my own position. Um, it was hard. Those were hard times. Uh, I, I cried a lot when I was in mm-hmm. seminary. I would come home and cry to my new husband and say, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, am I just going nowhere? Is this really a career option? Uh, am I deluding myself? Am I disobeying the Lord? Is the Lord mad at me? Uh, these were real questions that I asked myself on a regular basis. Uh, was the Lord was I creating an offense with God for doing to, to try to go into theology? But there's a line in the movie Chariots of Fire, and it's one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie, where Eric Little, um, he's, he was a Christian missionary to China, but before he went to China, um, he was an Olympic athlete. And he goes on a walk with his sister. And his sister is so concerned about him because she wants him to go be a missionary and do the holy thing. And he wants to go to the Olympics first. And they're out on this walk in the hills of Scotland. And, and he tells his sister, you know, I'm going, God made me for China. And I'm going to go to China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And I remember how often that line from that movie would go through my head that when I did theology, when I studied, when I used my mind for God, I felt his pleasure. I felt like it was a good thing. But lurking in the back of my mind was always doubts Hmm. of am I doing the right thing? And I studied all the, the passages and still had questions it was a it was a long long and hard journey for me I I wish I could sit here and tell you like my 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 conscience was firm I knew exactly what I was doing I could tell you all the passages here's how I worked it out I've got some things worked out and I still have questions about some things so I think well thank you for sharing that um and I think that your journey reflects the journey of a lot of women in ministry Yes, some who may be in the Reformed tradition, but I think across denominations, women who go into ministry are faced with the thought of, you know, I feel God calling me to ministry and my family. I feel God calling me to ministry and this person or pastor has said this. I feel God calling me to ministry and dot, dot, dot. What were the things that kept pulling you to pursue ministry, even though, you know, on the back end, you have the pastor saying you'll be under church discipline (laughs) or someone else trying to call your employer to be like, you fire her. Yeah. Well, and that's 
something pretty close to that has actually happened. I do want to welcome some of our viewers watching, and I love your comments. Uh, our friend Cynthia Hampton, who was a guest with us several weeks ago, um, wrote in a question or a, a, in the chat box a comment. I'm glad to see you online. Rhyme His Songs is here. Whoop, whoop. Giving Cynthia a shout out for her guest appearance a few weeks ago. That was just, that was such a great show. It if people really have not yet listened to the our interview with Cynthia, go go uh, fix that. She's an ex Jehovah's Witness, yeah. Um, and Annette says, uh, she's pretty sure that pastors skip a lot of scripture about women that were in ministry in the Bible. And, you know, uh, Annette, that's a great comment because going back to your question of, you know, how did I, how did I work all that out? You know, I got my pastor telling me one thing and then I got what I feel like is the Lord telling me another thing. And, um, it was, it was, uh, it was hard. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Uh, I think one way that I kind of worked it out in my mind was that I was trying to be in a more academic track. I wasn't trying to go for pastoral ministry. And so I felt like that was a path of lesser resistance. Um, and I was trying to, to take a path of teaching undergrads who were maybe 18 to 20, 21 years old in most cases. And so I think there was something in my mind that thought, well, God won't be upset with me if I'm teaching young people, that that's somehow less objectionable to him than me teaching adults or me pastoring. And so that was one of the ways that I just kept moving forward I'm not necessarily advocating that as a position, but that was one of the ways that I tried to work it out because there was definitely this, this dissonance in my mind about what I felt like was my call that, that I was very good at teaching theology. Um, but at that time in the early nineties, I can't tell you that there was one woman that I could point to and say, I want to be like her. Mm -hmm. There was nobody, there was no prominent evangelical theologian with a PhD who was a woman who believed that the Bible was the error-free word of God, who was, who had a PhD from a legitimate seminary. There was, there was nobody that I could point to. The closest that I could come to was uh, a gal named Gretchen Passantino, who was an apologist who sometimes made appearances on the Bible Answer Man show in the late eighties and early nineties. And I went to, uh, my husband and I, when we were first married, we went, uh, I don't know, Bob, if you remember this, going down there to hear them oh, speak yeah. once, uh, Gretchen. The line, yeah. That's where we get the line that there's a parrot on my shoulder. Yeah. So there was a little inside joke between my husband and I, but, um, Bob and Gretchen Passantino were this, this couple, uh, where the husband and wife and the wife was really smart and the husband was really smart, but they were self-taught for the most part. She was really the only woman I could point to that was an apologist and who was a woman. And it felt so lonely. Like, why am I doing this? And then the family considerations, um, it's, it's more, it, it, there are certain, I don't want to say it's more challenging as a woman. There's just different challenges as a woman is you have to be married to a man that really believes in your ability that they're willing to move because it's very common for a young wife to move with a husband to go get a PhD 
it's not very common for a husband and a young family to move so the wife can go get a PhD. Mm-hmm. And my husband was willing to do that. Um, we were, I had been accepted to a program at Gordon Conwell in Boston, and we were getting ready to get rid of all of our worldly possessions and move across the country. And he was willing to go on this adventure with me. And it was before we had children. We'd been married about six or seven years at that point. But there are unique challenges of being a woman who is wanting to, to go into a call of ministry or in academia. You have to have a husband who is willing to be in that Mm -hmm. with you. And not everybody's up for that. So then what do you think are the hangups with the guys? Fellas, what's really going on? I mean, and yes, in, in a playful sense, but then also in a very real sense of are men just like not supportive in general or like, and I, I'm, you're not a man, so this might just have to be like a, my best guess. Well, but I just, I wonder like where, where are the, the, Hey women, let's go. Let like, come on, you can do it. Well, I, I think a couple of things, I mean, really you should ask Bob. I mean, he, yeah, what it's like to be like the husband of a Christian famous type of woman, you know, uh, I think I'm on the D lift list of Christian famous people, but you know, I I think that there's a there's a couple of things in play. I mean, one is, um, I think many men are, there's more and more men who are becoming more open to this. Mm-hmm. There, the the Christian culture has shifted um, in the 25 years since I was in seminary, where men are more seem more open now to recognizing their wife's gifting. And what their gifting is like, I think Beth Moore's husband is like a plumber or something, you know, but you, you, you have to know that you're a team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that was something that Bob and I always, even when we were young, we always had a very much of a team approach of we're going to help each other. I helped him with movie projects and he helped support me through seminary. He worked two jobs. He often worked 60 hours a week so that I could um, go to, through seminary and we wouldn't have any debt at the other end. And I worked too, but he he had to be in it with me. Um, so I think that my husband was a man really ahead of his time. <laughs> you know, I mean, now we talk about feminist husbands and I know he wouldn't probably like that label, but that's now what is called to us. We were just always team members and we always had an agreement in our marriage that we were both going to work hard and we were both going to help each other. And if we could make a way for each other, we would. And what our dreams and, and gifting and call were from the Lord. Um, but I think that also there's challenges in the in the church because depending on where you land on the spectrum of the the views of complementarianism or egalitarianism, and we can that break... That going to be my next question. Yeah, we can break those down if you want, but... It's hard because in churches that are hold to a complementarian position, which is more of a male leadership role um, and headship view, um, even though many of them are theoretically open to women doing some things, it's really hard to point to positive examples where that's really happening. So much energy gets spent 
parsing the theology and figuring out the parameters of what's allowed and what's not allowed that often there's not enough energy left. I don't think to really push women forward and open up a position for them. So can you define for us complementarianism versus egalitarianism? Sure. And it's, it is a, I'm just going to check our messages here. So just making sure if we got uh, any comments over on Facebook. Yeah. Um, It's, Oh, thank you, David. I'm glad you're enjoying the conversation. Um, and thank you to Rhyme His Songs for enjoying my little Chariots of Fire homage. This, uh, But, okay, complementarianism. This is how I've broken it down after 25 years of study. I've literally read tens of thousands of pages on the issue of gender and women in ministry and all of those things. Um, and I've thought about it and reflected on it for two and a half decades. And to me, all of it comes down to one issue is if you believe that there was, if you believe that hierarchy is part of the created order, like in other words, God made it from the beginning. He designed it for the man to rule over the woman. If you believe that, you're a complementarian. If you believe that hierarchy is a result of the fall, that it's a result of sin, then you're an egalitarian. So an egalitarian would say man and woman before the fall were made to be partners, to co-rule and to co-reign the planet together. But as part of the curse... God says, now the man is going to rule over you, mm-hmm. the woman, and the woman is going to try to, what I like to say in everyday terms, figure out how to manipulate the man to get her own way. And that the battle of the sexes, as we call it, is a result of the fall. Who's going to be in control? Who's going to have power? Is it the man over the woman or the woman over the man? That those dynamics are the result of the fall. A complementarian would say, No, God designed it from the beginning for the man to to be in charge, to have primacy, and that the woman is there as a helper. And he's there to make the decisions and to be responsible and to to kind of rule and reign on the planet, and the woman is there to help him. That would be the complementarian position. So there are certain roles that are inherent in God's design. Men do this. Women do this. Okay. Um, does that help yeah, kind that of break it, break it down? That makes so, sense. Historically, what is the view that the church has held? Yeah, so that's another question entirely. So. Because I might have to go against the historic view. I'm yeah. Not, yeah. So <laughs> gotta make sure I'm what right. I've just described, these two views of complementarianism and egalitarianism, to put them in a historical perspective, um, I would say that egalitarianism is a fairly late view. Um, uh, Dr. Alvera Mickelson um, in the 1970s was really kind of the pioneer of this view. And this is the view associated with uh, such associations as the Christians for Biblical Equality. Um, And... It is the late comer in Protestantism. 
the complementarian or the traditional or the hierarchical view, whatever you want to call it, is more of the historical view. But I'm going to say this, and this is something I'm still only recently learning about. About a year and a half, I went to uh, a year and a half ago, I went to a conference. Uh, it was an Eastern Orthodox conference on the office of deaconess and restoring the office of deaconess within the Eastern Orthodox tradition. That was an interesting, um, oh, your friend's calling. <laughs> uh, silence that. We're just going to, all right. So what I learned in that conference is that historically there's other things that have been happening that we as Protestants don't know. And so, for example, in the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox tradition, all the priests are men. But the question is, is why are they men? Is it for the same reasons that Protestants put forward for the hierarchical or a complementarian position? From what I can tell, it doesn't seem to be the same. Hmm. This, the, the egalitarian versus complementarian seems to be an internal debate among Protestants and the, the ancient faith view comes at it from a very different perspective. And that's something I'm still learning about and trying to understand. So, okay. I kind of feel like Protestantism is new to the game too. So, (laughs) you know, um, okay. Going to YouTube really quickly. Yeah. There's a couple of good comments Mm -hmm. on here. Our friend Cynthia says, um, what I've heard from those who are against women in ministry is uh, letting a woman teach will lead to liberalism and false doctrine. What are, you, are, are you okay over there? No. All right. Sorry. You got like some new eyeshadow on and things are falling apart over here. It's my chapstick. Okay. Sorry, your chapstick's friends. falling. Sorry. We could have a whole segment about chapstick. We could. Yeah. We could. All right. So let's go back to the, uh, the question. Oh, good. Thank you, Emily. All right. Um, so, yes, I have heard this objection as well, Cynthia, that if you let women teach, uh, it will lead. It's a slippery slope to liberalism and false doctrine. I mean, this is one of the main um, objections I'm seeing right now to Beth Moore mm. um, in the Southern Baptist. People don't want Beth Moore to. People are concerned Beth Moore might be the next president of the Southern Baptist Convention mm. and that that will be a slippery slope into liberalism. Um, and this, this is not an un, uncommon, an uncommon view. Uh, I, what I'm learning from um, in the Orthodox tradition is they have a very similar concern that if we go back to the ancient practice of ordaining women as deacons, uh, that's going to be the nose under the tent to the next stop is going to be ordaining women to the priesthood. Uh, they have a similar slippery slope kind of concern. And so, but I would say, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there is, the idea of ordaining women as deaconesses is a very ancient tradition and very strong. And there are some ancient churches that never left that, like the Coptic church. Mm -hmm. They continue to ordain women as deacons and have never stopped. So... I think that that is highly interesting. I'll use that word. <laughs> and that says um, it's ridiculous. It, yeah. Let's be clear. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I like that. Annette says that's totally ridiculous. 
Um, and Annette also says the historic view isn't always correct. And I think that, um, you know, we should, I, I'm really trying to get my Orthodox friends to come on so they can explain this a little better than me. But I think what's important for us to understand about the historic nature of the faith is to ask the question, is that was this belief universal in the church? Because you can always find pockets of, of mm-hmm. um, aberrant teaching. And so in that sense, you're right in that it's the historic things that happen in history doesn't automatically mean something's correct. But when we have a universally understood view, a universally practiced view, we're always practiced throughout the ancient church um, in all five of the early um, centers of Christianity. I would say that's at least to me a strong historical precedent that that's how the Bible was understood and interpreted. Mm-hmm. And so I, I give some level of deference to that um, because I want to understand how were things interpreted by the early church before we got so tainted with modernism and postmodernism. So, yeah. So another question then. Um, Sorry, your questions are hiding. I'm going to keep toggling back and forth. <laughs> Sorry. <thanks. laughs> um, another question is... When you read scripture and you hear of Mary and Mary, Mary and Martha, mm-hmm. does was it like a fluke that God used women then, oh. or like when you hear of the two Marys coming from the tomb and right. with, with the report that Jesus is, has risen, it to me that makes it me think like, hey, he does use women, or was it like the men just were like were they on a coffee break? What was really happening? Why did he choose to, or, you know, do, did he only use them in the, in that one time instance? Like, is there like a hidden scripture somewhere in another book that says, pardon me, don't do this again. Like, I don't, I don't really get it. So what you're asking there is is a very perceptive question, actually, because uh, the way that people who are complementarian or what we might call the traditional or hierarchical position the way they would answer that question is, well, Jesus chose women because the men weren't showing up and doing their jobs. He would have chosen men to do those things, but the men weren't manning up. And so he was left with the women. Wow. Those complementarians are kind of rough. Well, <laughs> wow. I'm wow. trying to be as fair as I can, but that, that, I mean, if you go on some John Piper videos, that's, that's pretty close to what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people like John Piper and Wayne Grudem, I mean, these people don't even believe that women should be policemen or in the military because there are assigned roles for men and women and men should be the protectors and they should be the policemen and they should be the military people and they should be the the leaders in the church and the apostles and all of this. And, um, but yes, Jesus did on occasion use women, like the, the quintessential example is Deborah and, and Barak in um, the Old Testament. I've heard complementarian leaders say, well, God wanted to use Barak, but he wasn't manning up. He wasn't stepping into his role of leadership. So he 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 allowed Deborah to come forward. It's not that he really chose De- Deborah to do something. Wow. It's that, that it, she was the second best because Barak wasn't a real man. 
and that God was trying to teach him something about how to be a real man throughout. I, I've heard many um, Mark Driscoll, those type of people argue that way. I, I don't find, I, I take a different position. I, I take a position that God is fairly intentional. And um, I think that um, Luke chapter 10 is a very important passage. I don't have that as a graphic, but um if people read that, the, the time when Jesus comes to the home of Mary and Martha, one of the sisters is engaging in culturally um, common practices for a woman, which is hospitality. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with hospitality. Um, that's how you, you the right thing to do to tr- treat a, a, a rabbi who comes to your home. But the other sister is engaging in man's work. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus learning as the disciples. And the, the euphemism there of sitting at his feet is a euphemism for what disciples did with rabbis, that they sat at their feet to learn. And that was considered man's work. And yet Jesus praises that sister and says that she's engaged in something very noble in, in learning. And I think that Jesus is pretty clear if you understand how to read the passage um, in its historical context. What he's saying is it's noble for women to learn. It's some women are designed this way and it's noble for them to learn just like the men. And um, I think that Jesus intentionally appeared to women first as the first eyewitnesses to his resurrection because he knew that their testimony wasn't accepted in a court of law, the same as a man's. He knew that if he really wanted to be secure in in the greatest uh, moment of history, of human history, go, go find some men because their testimony will be believed. And yet in Jesus's upside down way of doing things, he, I think he intentionally picked the women. Mm-hmm. So I, I see it a little, a little differently, you know. What would be your either word of caution or um, encouragement? women looking to enter into ministry? Oh, that's, that's such a great question. I would say um, I have learned the value of trying to remain humble and trusting the Lord because you will run up against obstacles. Um. There will be challenges. I've had male students ask me what I'm doing there when I was in seminary. But I also had many male students be very supportive of me being in seminary. I'm, I, I went into theology because I had two male professors who saw my potential. And they approached me and said, you should consider this as a career. Um, so... There were challenges and there were opportunities. And I would say to any woman that really believes that God has called, called her into ministry is trust the Lord more than humans. Trust the Lord more than obstacles. Trust the Lord more than what physically is in front of you. Uh, if it's meant to be, he will open the doors. He will make a way. 
And if you have to um, be creative, as I've had to be creative, um, I didn't have a lot of opportunities for many years to teach at my local church. I wasn't even sure my pastor knew my name for about 14 of those years. Um, so I started a YouTube channel and I was faithful in that. Um, I would say, be careful of falling in the trap of critical theory that wants to tell us that our whole goal in life is to tear down every aspect of patriarchalism. Um, I think that there's aspects of um, what it means to be a man that are important, that men and women aren't interchangeable. I wouldn't pastor a congregation the same way as a man. And I, I think that there's a there's an, an error that I sometimes see in uh, social media advocated by egalitarians that kind of treats men and women as interchangeable. I don't think they are. I think the complementarians are probably right on this feature that there is something about what it means to be a man and something about what it means, means to be a woman that we're different than each other. And that we're not interchangeable with each other. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to do things in our own unique way. Maybe we should think more about co-pastoring. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should think more about having co-pastors as youth pastors or as children's pastors, because men and women both bring different things and different aspects of, of what it means to be a Christian to the table. But don't fall into the error of bitterness. And my whole goal in life is just to tear down every form of patriarchy um, before I can have a chance. Trust the Lord more than men. If you're, if you're really, if this is really what his call is on your life, he will make a way. He will open a door. But you might have to learn a lot of humility in the, in the process. And I know that's probably not everybody's advice to, to young women who are thinking about going into ministry, but that would be my advice um, based on my experience. And that's all I can really speak from. Let's look at our comments here. Uh, Annette says, there are plenty of men who are false teachers. Well, that's true. <laughs> it's not a, we, women haven't cornered the, the market on that. That's, that's, that's true. Um, Laura Sanders says it doesn't, it also doesn't account for over a hundred years of continuationism, Pentecostalism, and the fact that they have remained conservative theologically while being egalitarian egalitarian in practice. And that's true. Laura, we should point out that different traditions see this differently. Mm-hmm. Methodists tend to be more open to women and advocating to women, have more of that in their tradition, um, ordaining women. Uh, Pentecostals, Charismatics, uh, the Black Church, uh, aspects of the Black Church, they tend to be more open mm-hmm. to, to women preachers. Um, so it very much depends on um, what tradition you find yourself in. Let's see. Annette, another ridiculous statement. They are on a roll. <laughs> Oh, and yes. then close out with Cynthia. She says, I know a lot of mainstream churches have female pastors who are liberal. I wonder if this female pastor liberalism is the result of conservative seminaries not allowing women to enroll. You know, hmm. I, 
I never had that problem, Cynthia. I went to Talbot. It was a very conservative seminary. Uh, they were very willing to accept my money um, and allow me to enroll in any class. I even took three semesters of preaching classes. Um, there was never any limitations on me. Now, there are a handful of seminaries that will not allow women to enroll in uh, Master of Divinity as, as a course of study because that is um, for seen, the men. It is seen as a, a pastoral track, mm-hmm. um, but that's very few. Like, I think maybe the master's seminary, but they could have changed yeah. since I last checked. But I don't, when I, at one point when I checked, they didn't allow women to enroll in, in that major, that, that, that degree program. Um, but for the most part, most seminaries will educate anybody. They'll take your money um, and they'll allow you to enroll in classes. So it hasn't been my experience. I never had any problems getting education. My problem was, what am I going to do with this education? Being able to apply the education that you Is this going to turn into a career? Am I going to mm-hmm. actually be able to get a job mm-hmm. at an evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing uh, school? That, that was a much bigger concern for me. Right, well, um, as yeah. we wrap up, I have one question left. Okay. Some women in ministry. Yes. Is it a green light? Like, go ahead. Uh, proceed with caution, yellow light, yeah. red light, like, you know. Don't do that. I would say if you if you know that God has called you into ministry or in, into theology in academia, and you know that that's God's call in your life, work toward that. Trust him to open the right, the right doors. And so in that sense, it's a green light. I would say it's a yellow light in the sense of, don't fall into the error that our culture is engaging in right now of angry feminism or angry evangelical feminism. I'm seeing more and more, um, even the Christians for Biblical Equality, who has been historically very conservative theologically, are starting to advocate and platform people who, who advocate for critical theory. And that concerns me because I, if I see regular posts from them saying that kind of their the point of egalitarian theology is to tear down all structures of patriarchalism. Hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think that's a good strategy. I think just stay in your lane, do the things God's called you to do. Don't fall into the trap of getting angry and being angry all the time. Trust the Lord, stay humble, work hard, take advantage of the small opportunities first be faithful in the little things and the Lord will make you rule over much. And um, I see an error with young women sometimes where they're like, I want to have all the same opportunities as the men right now. And if I don't, it's in, it's unjust. That's not going to help you. Um, that attitude won't, won't help you. And, and I think that my advice for the men is um, you need to understand your power. You need to understand your potential to open the door for a woman to do something. I have gotten everywhere I have gotten in my career because there was a man who opened the door for me. Hmm. Dr. Kirk Bayless at Talbot School of Theology in 1994 approached me after a class and said, you have potential you should think about a PhD in theology. Dr. Walt Russell hired me as his TA for three years and then hired me at 
the age of 27 to be an adjunct faculty. I think I was the first female faculty in the theology department at Biola. Kenneth Samples called me up and invited me to come to a job interview at Reasons to Believe 20 years, 20, almost 21 years ago, helped me get a job there and opened that door for me. My boss today, Dr. Fuzz Rana, promoted me to a directorship 14 months ago because he believed I could do it and he saw potential in me. Every single one of those doors I walked through was because a man opened the door. Men need to know their power and they Mm -hmm. need to, if you see a young woman with potential and promise, figure out a way to open the door for her, figure out a way to give her a chance. Um, because that might be the difference maker for her in her life. So that would be my advice. Good word. Yeah, I've good, never talked good. really publicly I, about most of these things. So well, that's, I hope that's that, awesome. I feel like, you know, we're going a little deep. That yeah, was good. High yeah. five. I, I kind of think right. we did well on that. I hope that helps somebody. All right. Yeah. So transitioning over to our next thing. Okay. Okay. Here it is. A while back, you yeah. put on, I think, your Theology Mom page. Yeah. What, do you, what would viewers like to hear about, talk about, um, have discussed on the show? Laura Sanders wrote in and said, dreams and visions, are yeah. they still for today? I'm probably butchering the question. No, I good. apologize. Um, but yeah, so does God still speak today through dreams and visions? Yeah. Let's talk about that. I have thoughts. Yes. Personally, I, I am a dreamer. And so, I yeah, I, I have a lot of dreams. A lot of is dreams is kind of but, one of your languages, mm-hmm. really. I mean, you speak Afrikaans and <laughs> plain Bicky. Yeah. Just so so. Yeah. And dreams and visions. The Lord um, is, is are you, you just, you dream almost every night sometimes multiple times a night, you know, that's just a big part of your language is, is dreams. Um, I feel like when, if the Lord really wants to get my attention, if he really needs me to know something, it'll come through a dream. Yeah. And so you're really tipping our ha- your hand there. On that's how, I'm, how, yeah, you, how I lean. How you not, I'm not saying way. everyone needs to lean this way, yeah. but this is how I lean. Um, but we can coming certainly, from, well, uh, just from a biblical standpoint, let's start there. That's what I was going to say. Let's start with scripture. I don't think it's a controversial point to say that God communicated through, in scripture mm-hmm. in, in Bible times, as we used to say, uh, through dreams and visions. I mean, you can just go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, yeah, there's dreams and visions the everywhere. Young men will dream dreams. Yeah, your young men will have visions. Your old men Joel, dream dreams. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's Joel. But the whole book of Revelation is one long vision. Mm-hmm. Um, minus the 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 um, you know, there's some some epistles in there, but even those are part of the vision. I mean, the whole thing is just a series of visions. Uh, Joseph uh, is is a dream interpreter. He has dreams and he interprets dreams. Daniel is another famous one. Um, and we see God giving dreams to the Pharaoh. We see God giving dreams to Nebuchadnezzar. So it's not just God's people having dreams, like even even people who don't know God or worship God, yeah. God sends them dreams. So not a controversial point at all to say that God in the past, that that he communicated through dreams and visions. The real question is, is does he, does, still? Does he still do it? Yes. So... 
Um, we. What are your thoughts? Do you say yes? Do you say no? I, are you like in the middle? Like, you know, if I lay on my right side with you know, the fan blowing, I, maybe I've, I might get a drink. This is, the, <laughs> this is one of those issues that uh, I, I've changed my mind about. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had asked me this question five years ago, I would have said, don't be silly. God doesn't communicate to us through through dreams today. And I wouldn't have even known what a vision is. Uh, well, but I've, I've changed my mind. And so I, I do think that God does sometimes, uh, communicate through dreams and visions. And, um, I would base that for example, on Acts chapter two, uh, which is a fulfillment of the Joel prophecy, which you mentioned a minute ago in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And again, that's from Peter's um, sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter two. To me, what I see this verse as saying, and if we had time, we could read all the context surrounding it. But what he's saying here is one of the manifestations of having the Holy Spirit is dreams and visions hmm. that that's one of the ways you know you have the Holy Spirit and it's one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, so I, I do think that it's, it's part of the Christian experience. It has been a part of the Christian experience throughout our history. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go to talk to people in ancient faith traditions, they don't have any problem with this at all. Wow. The, the, the people that have problems with this are, 21st century American Baptists. Well, you know, it's like where it's a did, very small group of Christians that have this problem. Where did we go awry? Well, my hunch is that we have been influenced by the Enlightenment, by modernism and postmodernism more than we realize. Hmm. And this is why I talk so much about ancient faith on this show. Because I want people to get a vision for Christianity of what it was like before postmodernism invaded our framework and our thought process. It just has a way of seeping into us. You know, if you put if you put um, baby oil on your skin, mm-hmm. yes. it, it 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 stays on the top, but it also soaks in. You know, our skin is like a giant organ and it just, mm-hmm. it just pulls things in. And, and when we live in the world, the framework of postmodernism, um, it seeps into us more than we realize. We think it's all on the surface and we think that we have separation from it, but it seeps in. And I think that one of the reasons why American Christians in, in certain strains of Protestant theology um, don't think that God communicates this way anymore is because they've been more influenced by enlight- the Enlightenment and modernism than they than they realize. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were in Africa, come on now. There was that. Yes, go ahead. Christians didn't have any problems with dreams and visions. No. That was just an accepted thing. You go talk to Christians in almost any other part of the world, they're going to tell you, look, the physical world is real, the spirit world is real, and sometimes these two collide. And one of the places they collide sometimes 
is in the dream world. Now, let's say let's say that's right. You know, dreams and visions are still for today. What do you do with the dream or the vision if you are a dreamer or a visioner? <laughs> and some people do I have visions. Know. I mean, I've talked to these people and they're in their right minds. They're not mentally ill. They're not on psychotropic drugs. They're not taking yeah. LSD. And some people, they they do see things and they do have spiritual sight and they're in their right mind. And we have to help people in our churches make sense of these things in a way with discernment that's biblically rooted, that's not crazy, but still acknowledges that what these people are experiencing is real and help them learn how to interpret it. How do we do that? Well, I did actually do a training on uh, dreams, interpreting dreams and visions, and I can't get into all that here. That's like a two hour training, but um just some basics is the first thing you have to do is ask the Lord of what's the spirit behind the dream or the vision. And there's basically three possibilities. There's it's, it's either um, a, a, a dream or a vision that you get from the enemy. It has a demonic origin. Mm-hmm. It's, or it's um, what I call, a, a soulish dream or something that's resulting from your mind, your will, or your emotions. Like you're really stressed out at work mm-hmm. and you have work stress dreams. That's a soulish dream. You know, you're, you're struggling with your marriage and that's a very stressful life event that's going on for you. And you have chronic dreams about it. Um, when my grandfather passed away, when I was 16, I had many soulish dreams because I just missed him so much. And, you know, so there's these things that are, were, rattling through our emotions and our mind that can be expressed through dreams. And then the third source of dreams is the Holy Spirit. And so the most fundamental thing you have to do is try to discern which of those three buckets the dream or the vision fits in. Is it from the demonic? Is it a soulish issue? Or is it from the Holy Spirit? And um, you have to then... Um, start to think about asking the Lord, well, what does this mean? Um, there's some, some good resources out there and there's some, some not good resources out there. Um, you could take a more psychological approach to dreams where people um, kind of look at dreams as a way of self-exploration. I would say that's not a biblical approach. Um, yeah, there is a, a theory or a thought that I've, um, heard I haven't really done much study into, but it's um, that in your dream, every person represented really is just a different aspect of you. Yeah, I that's that's I more don't. of a psychological yeah. approach to it. All right, we're going to get caught up on the uh, comments here. I need that training, Krista. <laughs> I haven't done it publicly. It's a it's a training that I do in an um, in an online format. I haven't done it publicly, but maybe the Lord will sometime. Uh, let me do that in a public venue. I just haven't had an opportunity to do that. Um, Rhyme his song says when they have a dream, uh, I listen and ask the Lord for direction in my dreams and they're enjoying the segment. That's good. Um, and also earlier, Rhyme his song says never really dreamed until 2011. And then out of the blue, the following week, it was about a pending job change for a family member I hadn't spoke to 
in months and it got my attention. Yeah. Uh, dreams are interesting. So should we tell a little story about how we met? Since Whoa. it kind of there's that kind of relates to this. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, did I miss it? Question for Abby and M. All right. Um, do you think your friends would let Krista interpret their dreams for them as an evangelistic outreach, or would that kind of <laughs> just freak everybody out? First of all, it's not how you me. Well. Okay. All right. So, what do you think about that? Is that <laughs> nobody's ever asked everybody's them? Everybody's on the spot now. Good one. Maybe come back to her. So the answers are freaked out and concerned. Our friends would be freaked out and concerned. You know, it's not every day that you have parents who operate in the supernatural. Yeah. So, hey, there's it's, that. It's complicated. But it I, I will say that, like, a couple of my coworkers have come to me and asked me about helping them interpret a dream and, and, uh, it's something I do every once in a while, but yeah. please, please don't send me your dreams. There's ask, that. ask the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to get into the dream interpretation ministry. Also pizza at night. I mean that, I guess that be. could fall into soulishness, the, the, the soulish, you know, yeah, bad pizza. Okay. So our story. Yes. You actually had the dream. So maybe you should yeah. sit, share the story and I can kind of chime in. Okay. So in uh, November. 2017. Yeah. I think it was like around the 8th of November or so. Um, I had a dream and it was what? Can you go back, please? Thanks. Okay. Uh, I had a dream where um, I was in, I was with some people that I knew and uh, they, we were in South Africa mm-hmm. and I was going with those people across this war zone and we were getting shot at and we were trying to get in this car and get away from the war zone. And, and it was all very crazy and it's a lot of violence and rape and shooting. And then we got to through the war zone, we got to this place that was near the coast. It was near the beach. And by this point it was just, I think it was just me at that point and in the in these rocks were all these cages in these rocks on the beach and the as the waves would come up it would fill the cages with water and inside the cages were small children and there was this um american black woman named mo who would get these children out of the cages on uh, like a daily basis so that they wouldn't drown okay now let me stop you there yeah just to be clear, we had never met. No. She didn't know about me. There was no kind of secret, you know, group telling her things about me on the side. Mm-hmm. Nothing like that. Anyway, keep going. So she was, so it was in South Africa. It was near a beach. There was an American black woman with a really big smile. Her name was Mo. She was rescuing these children in cages. And then she would bring them up on this the, the cliff and they were out there. And then I went there to talk to her and to give her training of some kind about how to minister to these children. And then I said, like, take, show me around, take me to the most difficult case of, of the children. And then 
we, we prayed over the child and it got healed. And so anyways, this was sort of the dream. And I woke up and it, the, the dream was so vivid and so elaborate. I was like, Lord, what was that? <laughs> you know, were you a dreamer prior to this I, dream? I, I was not really. I always, I had struggled with nightmares most of my life, but it just in the last couple of years, I'd started dreaming, but I hadn't, I hadn't really had much experience of like God communicating with me through dreams. And so all I could hear him telling me was just write it down. So I wrote down as much detail as I could. I'm typing it out with my thumbs on my iPhone at like two in the morning, trying not to wake up my husband. And then about two or three days later, I'm on social media and on Facebook. And that thing that happens where like you have mutual friends and they comment on a public post and then it populates to your feed. Um, so a mutual friend that we have had commented on a post of you, a video, a video of you doing a sermon up in Northern California and you were doing for your fundraising or something for mission work. And it, your name was Mo. And I saw your picture and I thought, Oh my goodness, that's the woman in my dream. And I thought, look at that smile. Look at that smile. Like that's an unmistakable smile right there. Like, you know, you, you see that smile in your dream. You never forget it. And so now I can't stop smiling. Yes. So I'm like, what in the world? So I didn't know anything about you. I didn't know you were a missionary in South Africa. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about that. So I just wrote in an impulsive moment, which I almost never post on public posts. I think I just had a dream with you. Yeah. That's what you wrote. And I was like, <laughs> what in the what? Who is this person? You and why are they, we need to talk. And I'm why like, are they oh. having dreams with me? Why? <laughs> Well, you put in a little bit more information than that, too, I, it though. It was like, I think I had a dream about you or something to that effect. And then we talked on the phone a few weeks later. And you wanted me to tell you all the things about the dream. And I didn't feel like the Lord wanted me to tell you everything up front. Yes, I like so that was to know everything awkward. up front all the time. I do not like to wait or no to be kept in suspense. Surprises no. are of the enemy <laughs> in my book. Um, anyway, so in the dream, though, and when we talked later, you were able to tell me really intricate details about where we were in yeah. South Africa, not knowing that I was living in South Africa. And then you that went by I, Mo. Yeah, that I go by Mo. Yeah. Um, that I live near the beach. And then about 45 minutes away, I actually was working by the beach. And the conditions in which I was working, the kids that I was working with, all of those things, like pretty much to the T, like you really would have had to have gone and stepped foot in the area that I yeah. was working in to know those details. Yeah. And so anyways, that's a little bit about how we, how we met and mm -hmm. the Lord just brought us together and put us together in a, uh, under a very, I think that dream just kind of laid the foundation for a very interesting journey that we've been on together for a little over a year now. But I, I think if it hadn't been for that dream, we wouldn't have known that you were legit. Like that's yeah. it. Cause I would have been like, um, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> and I would be like, I can't trust yeah. you. No, no, I, I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. Yeah. No, but because I am a dreamer, when I was asking the Lord, is this, you know, true, right. I think he was able to speak and I was more open to the possibility because yeah. it's something that regularly happens for me. Um, and since that time, I have had a few other dreams about people. I've had dreams about 
friends who were in distress that I didn't know were in distress. And then I reached out to them and found out that they were in distress. And, and, uh, you know, my husband's had a couple of dreams. He had a dream about a year ago about that the Lord wanted him to quit a certain job he was doing because they were taking advantage of him. Um, so it is, it's not like I'm getting messages from God through dreams every night or even once a week, but every so often, if the Lord Mm -hmm. needs to give me some information, it's, it's one of the ways that he does talk to me. So, so two takeaways that you would have people take away from the conversation of dreams. I would say, uh, just like Paul says in first Thessalonians four, test all things. Mm -hmm. You want to always don't assume that every dream you get is from God. Test all things, you know, don't despise the prophetic word. Don't despise the move of the Holy spirit. So there's two errors that they see the Christians make. One error is, uh, a denial of the supernatural, um, or saying it's so rare that they almost shouldn't expect it. On the other end of the spectrum, people who think that every spiritual encounter they have is from the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, Butterfly flew by. Oh, that must be Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I love her. There it is. Uh, So I think just having discernment, asking the Lord, seeking the Lord, looking in scripture um, for for, um, what you think. If you can kind of ascertain like the big idea of the dream, what's the big concept the Lord's trying to communicate with me about, and then looking in scripture and see if that contradicts scripture, Yeah, you know? And, and so being discerning about the spirit behind it, don't assume all communications from the spirit realm or from the Holy spirit. I would like to add, write it down. Yes. Write down your dreams, write down the visions, because even if the Lord doesn't speak on it, the moment you wake up or that day or that week, it may be something that he wants you to know and use as a marker that he speaks to later on. Yeah. And so, yeah. Or, I mean, it could just be the pizza, you yeah. know, but write it down and begin to learn from what you're dreaming, what is being revealed. Yeah. And this, just so you know, this is absolutely uh, a true story that I told yeah. about Monique and I. Yeah, no, 100%. <laughs> 100%. Um, sadly, my phone fell in the toilet where I had all the, the notes, but yeah, it's absolutely a true dream. There's that one time. Have, I don't have that anymore, but, um, yes, I have, I did read it and, um, yeah, I actually remember thinking like, wow, this, this really happened this date, which is before I went to speak up North. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, it rhyme his songs. I love how you say that is this is a divine partnership in ministry. I like how you say that. Yay. I agree. Yeah. Um, and uh, K and Mo, I might have paid $65 to hear that story and that it led to a divine partnership. in ministry. yes, you would. have. Yes. Yes. I'm telling you, we need to take this show on the road. <laughs> Support Christians. Amen. Oh, gosh. All right. I think we're done. It's been a fun time. Yeah, it has been. Thanks for sharing your stories about women in ministry, being a woman like in ministry. I talked a lot today. Next you did. You're going to do And that's everything. okay. And that's all right, because you know what? We need to know. So that was awesome. I personally Next appreciate week, it. Next week, I think we should do a show on race and make money to all the talking. No. I, why must I be the one to talk about race? <laughs> nope. We can talk about many things. Sociology, social work, children. Those are the things I like. Yes. Butterflies. And we Bubbles. Will. Bubbles. And yeah. we will talk about all of those things. Maybe get Max McLean to be God's voice through... 
though wait though when you do the reenactment yeah. <laughs> um good stuff thank you so much for addressing this it's hard to find non-weird biblically based info on dreams yes we try so, not to be weird well, i don't necessarily hold to that i will be weird on some moments <laughs> i will make a weird face i would do all kind of things but i would recommend uh i do like um john paul jackson for some helpful information about dreams um, he does have a few YouTube videos. He passed away a couple years ago, but he, I, I like his approach because he has a um, very biblical approach to, to dreams. So that was a, a resource I found helpful early on. And um, so, yeah, it's dream. There needs to be more teaching out there about how to understand dreams in a non weird way. Um, and I just, I, it's so hard for me because there's so many teachings I want to do. I, I probably drive my family crazy with how many I want to do. I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to do a teaching about that. This is one of them I'd really like to do is a, is a, a teaching series on interpreting dreams and visions. But I just don't have time. Well, <laughs> in August, we are going to talk about supernatural, yes. about this supernatural and yeah, the more different, supernatural yeah, things. the aspects yeah. of the supernatural. I want to say that so that we don't forget yeah. You can look forward to it. And maybe we can hit on dreams and visions a little bit more then. Yeah, that's so. Good. Yes. Okay. So catch the show, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. No, we're way over time. No, we're just, no, we're way over time. We're done. Okay. We're blowing the bubbles. We're finished. Blowing the bubbles. Thank you all for your support. We really would appreciate some shares, likes, comments. That's the best way right now you can help support the ministry. If you would like to. Make a donation uh, for more bubbles for Monique. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, just to help support us in growing this ministry and helping us get the word out about what we're doing. Um, the uh, PayPal link is in the YouTube notes. And we do yes. appreciate your support and um, your prayers and all the things that Monique and I are trying to figure out how to sew into here. In yeah. The, oh, in awesome. Ministry. Um, um, what else would you like to talk about? Yes. Put them in the chat box. Yeah. Put it, send us an email, attlivestream at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, for sure. Thanks thank for you, the bubbles. Thank you to Laura for submitting the idea for yeah, the dreams. That was awesome. I really like this, um, viewer participation. Yes. Yeah, that's good. All I right. can't see a thing out of my glasses. It's time to go, people. <laughs> Bye. God bless. Bye-bye. <laughs>